Uh, hello, everybody. Can I have your attention, please? We don't have the uh, the video to start the next session, so I'm just going to uh, begin my presentation. So if, uh, if everybody could just pay attention, thank you. Okay, so it's uh, really my uh, uh, privilege and pleasure to be here today. And I just want to point out, I serve as an, I have served as an expert witness in quite a few um, uh, court cases. Uh, and I take my scientific testimony very seriously. And uh, this will be no different. And so I am imposing upon myself a swearing in uh, moment here. So I brought my Bible. And on this Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. I base all of my messaging on peer-reviewed published science. Uh, I often get accused of spreading misinformation. For those who do that, um, they often attack me as a person. I never attack anybody as a person. I feel that we're all of equal inherent value as human beings. We're all deserving of respect and love. And uh, that applies to those who hate me. Um, but I do often point out errors in people's messaging when I feel that it contradicts the science. And what I want to show you today is uh, a lot of errors in the messaging regarding COVID-19 vaccines. So if I could have the next slide, please. So first of all, and I'm gonna use the screen to my left to point, point things out. So for full disclosure, I'm the chief operating officer for a company called Immunoceutica, which develops immunoceuticals. I also hold some research funding that was provided to me by my federal government to study host immune responses to viruses. I hold several patents related to vaccines and viruses. I'm also an associate professor of viral immunology at the University of Guelph in Canada, but the views that I'm expressing to you are solely my own. Next slide. So I'm an expert when it comes to vaccines. I'm expressing to you are solely my own. Next slide. So I'm an expert when it comes to vaccines. I, I develop and optimize vaccines. And so I'm a vaccinologist. I really understand the science underlying vaccines. So what I wanna share with you today is just a few concerns that I have, a few out of the many concerns that I have relating to the science underpinning COVID-19 vaccines. And I'm gonna start from the very foundation. So the primary rationale for vaccine mandates and masking mandates was this concept that there could be somebody sitting beside you who didn't feel sick, they felt perfectly healthy, you couldn't tell they were sick because they didn't appear sick, but they were somehow spewing enough of the SARS coronavirus 2 to, uh, to reach a threshold dose that would infect you even though they weren't coughing or sneezing, that would infect and kill you. That was the rationale we call asymptomatic transmission. Now, if you ask me, is asymptomatic transmission a real effect when it comes to SARS coronavirus 2? Yes. Asymptomatic transmission does occur, likely very rarely. Was it a key driver of transmission for the past two years of the SARS coronavirus 2 pandemic? No, absolutely not. It did not contribute substantially to that. And I want to point out the reasons why. There's now a body of literature of at least 48 peer-reviewed published papers that argue in favor of asymptomatic transmission of SARS coronavirus 2. It is all fatally flawed. So we have an established scientific literature, but you have to understand it's fatally flawed, and it will tell you why. If you are going 
to run a study where you're looking at the potential to transmit the causative agent of COVID-19, you have to perform some kind of testing. And usually these papers rely solely on PCR tests, okay? And if you're gonna use a PCR test, first of all, you have to understand that it cannot differentiate between material, genetic material that comes from a, an infectious virus versus virions or virus particles that are non-infectious. Cannot differentiate this test, okay? So what you have to do when you run these studies is you have to calibrate the test. You do that with a very simple functional virology assay. What you do is you take cells stripped of their antiviral properties. You put that nasopharyngeal swab that was taken. For, you take half of that and run your PCR test. And you find a cycle threshold at which it is positive. Then the other half you put on cells that are stripped of their antiviral properties. So there's any viruses present, they'll infect the cells and kill them under microscope, just like this. So here's the cells, nice and healthy and happy. And if they... If there's a virus present that is potentially infectious, it will kill these cells. As you can see, it's very simple to see under microscope. <laughs> now, unfortunately, too few, but, but there were a few labs around the world that did this. They figured out what is the cycle threshold of PCR test at which you stop finding virus that can potentially infect somebody else. So in Canada, uh, a group associated with the Public Health Agency of Canada did this, and you will see the results here. They admit that the PCR test detects RNA, not infectious virus. And so what did they conclude from their study when they calibrated it using this simple virology assay? They concluded that at a cycle threshold of less than 24, there was no evidence of infectious virions. That's very important when you consider that most people have assumed that up to 38 or 40 cycle thresholds, people are infectious. This is important, remember this, next slide. Remember the cutoff of 24 that was objectively determined here. So this is an example of one of the many papers that have been published where they have concluded that asymptomatic people could be potentially be a problem. You can see that this is the conclusion of the paper here. Isolation of asymptomatic patients may be necessary to control the spread of SARS coronavirus 2. If you want to know that a paper like this is fatally flawed, you always go to the materials and methods section and you look, what was there, and you ask yourself, what was the rationale for setting their cycle threshold cutoff? You can see here, it was considered positive when the cycle threshold values of all genes were less than 40 cycles. There is no rationale. This was pulled out of a hat. I just showed you what they should have done. Had they done what they, was done in the previous study, they would have found that the cycle threshold cutoff to detect infectious virus particles would have been much lower. Canada, uh, a group associated with the Public Health Agency of Canada did this, and you will see the results here. They admit that the PCR test detects RNA, not infectious virus. And so what did they conclude from their study when they calibrated it using this simple virology assay? They concluded that at a cycle threshold of less than 24, there was no evidence of infectious virions. That's very important when you consider that most people have assumed that up to 38 or 40 cycle thresholds, people are infectious. This is important, remember this, next slide. Remember the cutoff of 24 that was objectively determined here. So this is an example of one of the many papers that have been published where they have concluded that asymptomatic people could be potentially be a problem. You can see that this is the conclusion of the paper here. Isolation of asymptomatic patients may be necessary to control the spread of SARS coronavirus 2. If you want to know that a paper like this is fatally flawed, you always go to the materials and methods section and you look, what was there, and you ask yourself, what was the rationale for setting their cycle threshold cutoff? 
you can see here, it was considered positive when the cycle threshold values of all genes were less than 40 cycles. There is no rationale. This was pulled out of a hat. I just showed you what they should have done. Had they done what they was done in the previous study, they would have found that the cycle threshold cutoff to detect infectious virus particles would have been much lower. This is the fig one of the figures from their paper where they have just randomly set the positive threshold for infectious detection of infectious virus at 40 cycles. And what they have here is they have yellow symbols and blue symbols, which are symptomatic and asymptomatic people. And when you look at this, you can't differentiate them. They're all intermixed. And that's where they drew their conclusion. However, when you apply a cycle threshold of 24, all but one of those individuals are no longer positive. There was only one individual in that study, if 24 was the appropriate threshold, that could have potentially transmitted the virus to other people, and notably that one individual was symptomatic. So it's very simple. Sick people are the people who spread COVID-19. It's common sense. If you're sick, like with any other infectious disease, and you don't want to get other people infected, stay home. Next slide. Okay. Now this is, I, I, I want to make this very clear. Okay, now this is, I, I, I want to make this very clear. People have heard lots about vaccines and what vaccines are and what they are not. Turning vaccination terms into word salads like we have been doing over the past two years and continually moving the goalposts for what uh, a vaccine is supposed to be confuses the public. You cannot have proper informed consent if you have the person who is wants to administer the procedure and the person who has to provide the informed consent if they aren't in agreement if they don't share the same understanding of a term they cannot be providing informed consent so in canada we have a definition of an ideal vaccine all right and i want to point out because scientific terms have very specific meanings and we haven't been adhering to these specific meanings an ideal vaccine is effective in providing lifelong not dampening of the uh, symptoms of disease, but lifelong protection against the disease after what? A single dose. Think about that in the context of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. In other words, according to the Canadian definition, we're as far away, these uh, shots, COVID-19 shots, are as far away from being an ideal vaccine as they can possibly be, yet still fall under the definition, umbrella term of a vaccine. In the United States, after the emergency use authorization, they actually changed their definition of a vaccine. Note that they did not change. If you go through their Wayback Machine, you can find the definition before the summer of 2021. And the term immunity has not changed. To be immune means to be exempt from disease. It means you cannot get sick and you cannot transmit to other people. That's what it means. What they did is they removed the term immunity from the definition of a vaccine. This was simply to accommodate these new COVID shots, period. And so under their new definition now, yogurt would be considered a vaccine. As an immunologist, I'm not gonna teach my students that yogurt is a vaccine, all right? This is the key. Most members of the public understand the traditional textbook definition of a vaccine, which is once you're vaccinated, you can enter the danger zone. Think about when you go to your physician and you're gonna to travel to an exotic location, they administer a vaccine if there is some kind of dangerous, potentially dangerous pathogen endemic to that region. What happens? You get the vaccine, your doctor wishes you well on your trip, and they look forward to seeing you again and hearing about your trip upon your return. That's because they know when you go, you're not gonna get the disease and you're not gonna bring it back to them. 
And that's what the public was thinking about when the term vaccine was applied to these shots. Next. And a vaccine, if there is some kind of dangerous, potentially dangerous pathogen, pathogen endemic to that region. What happens? You get the vaccine, your doctor wishes you well on your trip, and they look forward to seeing you again and hearing about your trip upon your return. That's because they know when you go, you're not going to get the disease and you're not going to bring it back to them. And that's what the public was thinking about when the term vaccine was applied to these shots. Next. And again, this has big implications for informed consent. In Europe, it's no different. I just wanted to show you since we're in Europe. So this is what uh, Europeans were told. Vaccination, right, is the main tool for what? Prevention of disease. No, prevention. Not dampening the severity of disease. Preventing the disease. And again, here's this term immunity, which means to be exempt from disease. You don't get the disease, you don't transmit it. Vaccines contain antigens that confer immunity against specific pathogens. And what does the European Center for Disease Infection and Control Prevention uh, and Control actually list among their vaccine preventable diseases is COVID-19, right? That's the understanding that Europeans had when the term vaccine was being applied to the COVID-19 shots. Next slide. So then you have to ask the question, because then we were told, well, if they dampen the disease, that's good. Dampening the severity of disease was never the goal. We have to remember how far the goalposts were moved, okay? These, these vaccines were originally intended, we were all told very publicly that they would stop the disease and they would prevent transmission. We were all told that, all right? So don't accept the fact that dampening the severity of disease was ever the goal. And I want to share you something, uh, share something with you. It's very important here. Um, through a freedom of information request, an important document was obtained. It was the contract between Pfizer and the United States Department of Defense. And I want to show you here. So here, here's a picture. This is the, the uh, agreement. Here's the key wording right here. And then it says Pfizer and BioNTech entered into an agreement for the co-development of a mRNA-based vaccine intended to prevent infection, prevent infection, not dampen the disease. All right. This is amazing because it was in this European Parliament that the members that have hosted us today highlighted to the world that Pfizer, they got Pfizer to admit that they never tested for the potential to stop transmission. And that's what you have to do. If you are trying to honor an agreement where you're trying committed to making a vaccine that's going to stop infection, you have to test for transmission. And their excuses that they didn't have time and that it wasn't really feasible is an outright lie. My lab and thousands of labs around the world for about 10,000 euros could have run a study, a preclinical study in animal models within a couple of months and told you whether or not these shots were, had the potential to prevent transmission or not. All right. And this, and we know that these vaccines cannot prevent infection or transmission. So in my opinion, Pfizer has failed to meet their contractual duty. Next slide. Okay. This is the other thing. So when, when these trials were published, some others have already mentioned this, um, that there's a big difference between relative risk and absolute risk. And all that has been exclusively published when it comes to these COVID-19 shots has been the, uh, the relative risk. The absolute risk reduction, for example, in the original trial was under 1%, the absolute risk reduction, but we, everybody heard that it was 95% effective, right? That's the relative risk. I want to point out to you, the U.S. health regulatory agencies all around the world, in this case, this is the United States Food and Drug Administration, but they all agree on the same thing. 
provide absolute risks, not just relative risks. Patients are unduly influenced when risk information is presented using a relative risk approach. This can result in suboptimal decisions. Thus, an absolute risk format should be used. Yet that was not done at any point over the past three years. Next slide. Uh, the relative risk. The absolute risk reduction, for example, in the original trial was under 1%. The absolute risk reduction, but we, everybody heard that it was 95% effective, right? That's the relative risk. I want to point out to you, the U.S. health regulatory agencies all around the world, in this case, this is the, the United States Food and Drug Administration, but they all agree on the same thing. Provide absolute risks, not just relative risks. Patients are unduly influenced when risk information is presented using a relative risk approach. This can result in suboptimal decisions. Thus, an absolute risk format should be used. Yet that was not done at any point over the past three years. Next slide. And I want to show you there's all kinds of, of ways the data were manipulated and hidden. I just want to highlight very quickly just two of many examples. We had a, 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 um, data from Alberta, Canada, showing that after the first dose, the first dose of the Pfizer uh, vaccine, there was this very unusual clustering of cases and hospitalizations in very close proximity to that dose. In other words, it, it, you expect this to be very randomly distributed, but it was not. This is clear evidence that the first dose was causing increased acute susceptibility to COVID-19. And yet all of these cases, of course, this was after the first shot within the first two weeks, all of these cases, although caused by the vaccine increasing susceptibility to COVID-19 were attributed to the unvaccinated. Also, our government, one of our governments, provincial governments in Canada had to admit that a majority of cases and a majority of uh, intensive care unit uh, admissions, a majority of them were not because of COVID, but with COVID. And I have to correct that as well. It's not actually with COVID, it's with a positive PCR test result, which means the people may or may not have had COVID and they have refused to overlay this data uh, based on vaccination status. And when that happens, that's a red flag. It's probably because it doesn't support the narrative that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Next slide. Also, I want to show because people still will argue, well, okay, if it stops the most severe outcomes, isn't that a good thing? Well, Pfizer's own six-month clinical trial data update shows you something very important. When they looked at deaths, those that had been vaccinated, in the vaccinated group, there were 15 deaths. In the group that was unvaccinated, there were 14 deaths. Then they shut down the control group after four months, right? And they vaccinated them all after vaccinated vaccinating those in the placebo group there were an additional five deaths so the whole point being there were numerically more deaths in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated it was not statistically significant so this is what you would conclude as a scientist there is no statistical statistically significant benefit of the covid 19 vaccine in reducing death so it doesn't even help in the context of the most severe outcome. Interestingly, there are almost twice as many deaths due to cardiovascular events in the vaccinated group than in the unvaccinated group, showing that even way back, way back, there was a uh, safety signal for cardiac events. Now we're so familiar with myocarditis, et cetera. Next slide. Okay, and I, so very quickly here, I just wanna point out, here's 108 studies that show that natural immunity works, okay? It's valid, and yet we have not accepted that over the past two years. Next. And this highlights uh, something right here. I, I just want to point out.
Okay, and I did, so very quickly here, I just want to point out, here's 108 studies that show that natural immunity works, okay? It's valid, and yet we have not accepted that over the past two years. Next. And this highlights uh, something right here. I just want to point out the green lines here, uh, and the higher you are on this graph, the better the outcome. The green line is natural immunity. These other lines are all various combinations of vaccines. And the whole point being that whether you're looking at infection or the severity of the disease, natural immunity is superior in every way, shape, and form to the immune responses conferred by the vaccines. Next. And by this point in time, I would be surprised if there's anybody left in the world who has not been infected with this virus. And very quickly, this, we know this, I just want to use the example here so you see it's real science. We know in any population when you administer a vaccine, you're always going to have non-responders, those that have simply not mounted an immune response. This is very important because if you have not mounted an immune response, guess what the issue is? You're at risk for being infected. And so this shows the lunacy of the vaccine passports. For some reason, we never bothered to look at any evidence of whether somebody actually had generated an immune response against SARS-CoV-2. And this is important because people who were not who had naturally acquired immunity were segregated, were segregated, and yet, including those who had clear evidence that they had naturally acquired immunity. Well, there were a bunch of people walking around certificates that said people saw two needles go in their arm, and they might not have mounted an immune response whatsoever, but they were allowed to live freely, even though they were much technically much more dangerous to those around them. Next slide. Okay, and then I just want to point out very quickly that those, again, natural immunity here, whether it's the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna one is superior to the vaccine-induced immunity, uh, and both in terms of cases, but also in terms of the severity of disease, hospitalizations and deaths. And when we are getting more and more transparent data from public health agencies around the world, we're starting to see that there might even be a concern that the vaccines are making people more susceptible to the COVID-19 and those, especially those that have been boosted with the bivalent vaccines, uh, may actually be more susceptible to severe disease. Next. And so I just want to finish with this, uh, a few discussion points to consider. All right, vaccines that fail to stop infection and transmission can drive the emergence of new variants. This is the same principle that we've seen for chemotherapy resistance in cancers and antibiotic resistance with bacteria. All right, and that is that if you have a biological entity prone to mutation and you apply a non-lethal selective pressure, you are going to drive the emergence of variants. So their widespread use must be stopped. We need to place a worldwide, worldwide moratorium on the use of mRNA vaccine technology for all species, not just people. You might not understand that we are fast-tracking all kinds of mRNA vaccines for animals. And we have to understand, especially when you think about the fact that we now know the mRNA vaccines get into breast milk, we have to start asking what are the implications of our mRNA vaccines getting into, into our food system, like through cow's milk, eggs, meat, etc. We need to acknowledge the value of naturally acquired immunity. We need to hire back the people who lack a COVID-19 vaccine certificate, give them full pay. And we need to offer fair compensation packages for those who do not want to return because their work environment is now too poisoned against them. We also need comprehensive reviews of funding structures for public regulatory agencies to see if there are potential conflicts of interest. We need to restaff these regulatory agencies with scientists of integrity. We need to make sure they have the security, the job security to speak out when they do have concerns. We also have to make raw data from the submission packages that go to the regulatory agencies available and novel public health data available for objective third-party scientists to review it.
And I'd like to just finish off by thanking the honorable members of the European Parliament that are hosting us today. I really appreciate the fact that you are allowing us to speak uncensored uh, and, and provide truthful information. Thank you very much.